This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the ninth episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's weekly awards podcast. I'm Scott Feinberg, the host, and I'm so pleased to be joined on this episode by the great Sarah Silverman. You know her mainly as a comedian, but she is also a very talented, dramatic actress, as you may have seen a few years ago in a little indie called Take This Waltz, but also, as we're seeing to a degree never before seen, in I Smile Back, a broad green release that was acquired out of Sundance and that is slowly rolling out in select theaters. It's a dark story that is not going to be the easiest uh, sell for a lot of people, but it features a performance that can hold its own among the best of the year, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others who've seen it. Uh, Unfortunately, the challenge is getting people to check it out because uh, people have a hard time, A, with wanting to deal with this kind of subject matter. Sarah plays a wife and mother who is secretly battling terrible addiction and depression, and that is not the most uh, appealing logline. But she gives a performance of of really great nuance and and skill, and I think will surprise a lot of other people as she did me. Before we get into things with Sarah, let me just first recap what's gone on since the last episode of this podcast posted, as we always do. Upon getting back from the Savannah Film Festival this past weekend, I dove headfirst into the festivities that are happening all over town here. There's screenings, Q&As, events, lunches, dinners, cocktail receptions, all kinds of stuff that are tied to the award season. The highest profile and most controversial event of the weekend was the Hollywood Film Awards, an event that draws more big-name stars than just about any other of the season, with the possible exception of the Golden Globes and the Oscars but is very polarizing for a lot of people in the community because of the way that it chooses its honorees. There's sort of a vague selection committee, but people know that only talent who is able to attend can be honored, and that's even if the talent's work has not yet been seen by anyone outside of, apparently, the selection committee of the Hollywood Film Awards. So I certainly feel it's worth covering when you have that many people showing up to be a part of it, regardless of the legitimacy of the of the process. If you're a contender whose profile is still on the smaller side, like Alicia Vikander, for instance, who was honored with the Supporting Actress Prize for her performance in The Danish Girl, it offers you an opportunity to kind of introduce yourself to the Hollywood community and create some excitement around your performance. Same thing goes for Brooklyn's Saoirse Ronan, who received the New Hollywood Award. If you're somebody who is well-known but whose movie hasn't yet been seen by very many people, like Will Smith with Concussion and Jane Fonda with Youth, It's an opportunity to go there and kind of create some excitement in advance of your film's release. And if you're somebody like Johnny Depp or Robert De Niro, who really does not like to campaign overtly, it's a nice way to get around that by either presenting to somebody else, as was the case with Depp, or receiving a career acknowledgement, as De Niro did, and uh, while still getting in plenty of references to the fact that he's going to be starring in the upcoming movie Joy, which was emphasized with an exclamation mark by the fact that that film's director, David O. Russell, presented him with the honor. So that was the big event of the weekend, but the big news of the weekend, really, the big takeaway of the weekend, is how poorly Oscar hopefuls continue to perform at the box office. One after another, they are going down hard. This weekend, 
the debuts of Our Brand is Crisis, the Sandra Bullock vehicle, and Burnt, the Bradley Cooper vehicle, both tremendously underperformed in wide release. So they were the major drivers in making this weekend the lowest grossing of any in 2015. But they're far from the only commercial disappointments among this year's Oscar hopefuls. You've got Steve Jobs continuing to to really underperform, as did The Walk, as did Truth, as did Beasts of No Nation, and the list goes on. One can only imagine that theater owners are anxiously licking their chops for the December releases of films like Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and Joy, and The Revenant, and others that are expected to do better, but at this point, who knows? So anyway, without further ado, let's talk about Sarah Silverman and her performance in a film that is certainly not going to shake up the box office either, but is really worth your time if you're a serious fan of the movies, and if you want to have your mind kind of blown about just who Sarah Silverman really is. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation right now. First of all, thank you for coming and doing this. I guess I wanted to just begin by reading you uh, a few names and and then ask you for some thoughts. First of all, in addition to Sarah Silverman and I Smile Back, Seth Rogen and Steve Jobs, Jason Segel in The End of the Tour, Elizabeth Banks in Love and Mercy, Steve Carell in The Big Short, Albert Brooks in Concussion, Bradley Cooper in Burnt. It's sort of the year of people like breaking out of whatever mold they've been sort of assigned by by the public, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh no, there's a podcast, and I'm not saying a very flourishy answer. <laughs> no, I'm well, just I... like, oh yeah, you're right, Scott. <laughs> well, I mean, Bradley Cooper just did American Sniper. He, right, last he did. Year, he so. broke and Carell. I mean, they've had a few years of this, but. I mean, you're stretching it. A stretching. Little. I think uh, but there uh, are a few good ones in there. But like, what is the? Do you think there's a reason that people who have sort of established themselves in comedy often are drawn to at some point doing drama? I think because uh, they're creative people and interested in doing things they haven't done mm-hmm. and exploring sides of themselves that maybe are not things they've exposed to the public. I don't know. I did a the first drama I did uh, was with Seth Rogen, mm-hmm. and we had got that question a lot. What's it like doing a a drama? And, and you know, it wasn't as heavy as this one now, right. but we both would just look at each other and be like, uh, it, "It's the same. We're saying lines honestly, like they're real." Right. right. Um, and I think we we're kind of like we weren't offended by the question at all, but it right. just is peculiar to us because there's no kind of. I think sometimes when people go from drama to comedy uh, unsuccessfully, it's because they they think they've got to put some comedy sauce of some kind on it, you know, and the people who know better, who are brilliant at Mm -hmm. both, like Alec Baldwin, are just, you know, they just do it honestly. I mean, sometimes comedy is, is more than just saying lines honestly. I mean, I had a... I had this my whole series, the Sarah Silverman program. Mm-hmm. I was pretty much Bugs Bunny, but that's what Sarah Polly saw me in, and somehow right. she saw from that s- struggling, you know, sober alcoholic Geraldine. You know, <laughs> and it's it is very rare. Right. And with this movie now, Amy Koppelman heard me on Howard Stern talking about my relationship with depression, and she she made a connection there. And it is other than those two examples. Um, you know, for me, it seems like it's ironically very rare in this creative world f- 
that somebody can imagine you as something that you haven't already, they haven't already seen you do before, which is odd. (laughs) Um, But that was the case with those two things, and those were the two dramatic opportunities I had, two out of two. I took them. I'm a dummy. No, they're great. And take this waltz, I want to ask you about more in in a moment. But, I mean, do you think there's some element of it that, Unfortunately, if you look at the the ways that we recognize great work, whether it's the Oscars or whatever, comedy is always treated like a like a second class citizen. So, is there some element of people sort of wanting to show, like, look, I'm worthy of respect, just as talented or whatever? It shouldn't be discredited. It because always it's- surprises me. I mean, what they'll do is they'll make it, uh, they'll give it like a screenplay nod, right? You right. know, like I mean, for me, bridesmaids. Uh, was uh, an Oscar-nominated worthy movie, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I wonder, everyone's talking about, like, I wonder if Inside Out will maybe be nominated, mm-hmm. which is odd for animated and, like, comedic, right. you know? But it is it is so true. Uh, comedy has always been kind of a second-class citizen. That said, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you do stand-up. Stand-up is an art form, and it's the only art form where people drunkenly shout out, right. you know, right. and... and uh, um, that said, it's kind of like the Red Sox. Like you love the Red Sox as a, someone from Bo- as someone from Boston, you know, or the New England area. Mm-hmm. You love the Red Sox because they're underdogs and they'll they've never won, <laughs> you know. And they and then two thousand four was it two thousand six yeah. maybe rolls yeah. around and they make this unbelievable comeback. They win the World Series and it's. It was kind of like um, an identity crisis because, <laughs> as winners, we're ass. We're just assholes, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, or mass holes. Right. So right. <laughs> you know, why we can complain that you know comedy gets no respect, and it's true. But I don't know that I would want uh, necessarily want to cross the board the respect we deserve because then. We might just be assholes right. <laughs> commenting on the world and what we see around us. You know, there you need an underdog element of that, I think. Maybe. Sure. Well, it's interesting that in the two instances of, of drama movies that you've been a part of, it, neither case it seems like were, were originated from you seeking out dramatic material. It was people that saw something and, and thought of you. And it's kind of funny because I, I when recently sat down with Seth about Steve Jobs and I said, you know, was this a case of you seeking, you know, were you looking to do dramatic? And he said, no, 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 I wasn't looking for somebody to Jonah Hill me or anything. Yeah. Here. And, Another uh, <laughs> brilliant comedic actor who yeah. is a, a phenomenal straight actor. Yeah. And Seth as well. Yeah. I, I was so moved by him and Take This Waltz, but yeah, Jonah Hill blows me away. Yeah. Well, for you, when did it, when did sort of the idea of performing whatever the whatever the format or the genre, when did that first um, kind of present itself? Were you into this from from very young age, the idea of being out in front of people? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, um, when I was in third grade, my mom showed me something. I filled out a worksheet from school, and it said, when I grow up, I want to be line, and I put uh, an actress, a comedian, or a masseuse. So, <laughs> Two I mean, out of three. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, uh, I've always wanted to be a comedian. That's, you know, since I was three, that's been like my greatest high is is making people laugh. As corny as that may sound, it's just the truth. Mm-hmm. It makes my arms itch with glee, <laughs> and um, but you know, I, I also was the 
kid who was, you know, I spent a lot of time in my room. Uh, you know, I remember playing like I had my mom's John Denver's greatest hits album, and I would like sit and and cry to sunshine on my shoulder. <laughs> I would, I got moved. I was right. moved at it for a pretty early age. I feel moved by things, and uh, and I would, or I would just sit in my room by myself and do. Uh, Emily's monologue from Our Town and mm-hmm. sob and cry. I, I, I was, you know, I, I used to have great access to my feelings, too much maybe, you mm-hmm. know, it was all on the surface. Mm-hmm. And I, um, through the, the damage of growing up and building walls and uh, also needing a small dose of daily Zoloft to survive, <laughs> I've my my emotions are very tightly uh, compact you know that i've got that thing that takes the air out of the sweater so right. you can pack it tightly <laughs> i use for my emotions and they're right. they're very deep and, and in very specific compartments well um i understand that your mother was uh in theater herself can you talk a little bit about that and what influence that may have had on you i'm sorry i know you just just recently lost her so yeah yeah yeah, she died in uh august the end of august um august 19th she was a um a theater director at a local theater at a at a local college in manchester new hampshire and she really brought theater back kind of to (laughs) to um in new hampshire i mean there were theaters there but community theater you know I, I mean at her funeral I, it was so moving the people that came to speak that were uh, cast members of hers that she just uh, accrued mm-hmm. is that the right word? Yeah. Gathered yeah, and yeah, absolutely. collected over the years yeah. um, one guy got up you know he didn't look familiar to me and he said uh, I, I was a waiter at Applebee's and uh, I waited on Beth Ann and she said, uh, hey, you're tall and handsome. Do you sing or act? And I said, uh, I don't know. And she said, well, let's find out. Come on down to the auditions. Wow. And I went to the audition, and I played Curly in Oklahoma that year. And, uh, wow. you know, he stayed in the, within the theater playing different roles, you know, for many years. And so many people in New Hampshire, you know, um, with who had no... Not only no creative ambition, but not didn't know that was a possibility. Didn't mm-hmm. know about theater. Didn't know about that. Where did where did she uh, learn about it? Where was she exposed to it? She, gee, I don't know. I, you know, she grew up. Um, I, I think maybe she saw some theater growing up in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and she uh, always loved it. She was just nourished by it. Mm-hmm. She would see a play and and. Uh, talk about the every element of it the sets and the costumes and she, you know when she was directing she did everything she painted sets I mean I the one thing I took when she died you know that I knew I wanted was hanging up on a hook in her closet her overalls and they're just covered in I, I wear them I mean I just stopped wearing them every day <laughs> I, there was basically an intervention for me that they're covered in paint from painting sets, you know, and 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 uh, she sewed costumes. You know, there's a. She had me, uh, my three best friends, and me were pages in Once Upon a Mattress, and she made costumes out of these yellow and white striped towels. And she was just very creative and resourceful. There was always a way to figure things out, and 
Um, you know, everybody called her mom, and, and that bothered me, you know, because <laughs> she was my mom, right. and they seemed to have such joy out of out of her being mom. And it's lovely because now I have young, you know, 22-year-old uh, comedians that call me mom, and I've learned <laughs> I love it, you know. I, part of me is like, fuck you. Right, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> but uh, right. I really do love it, you That's know, they great. call me ma. Well, tell me about, like, what what – I, I can only imagine what kind of a, a cool creative household could produce both a rabbi and Sarah Silverman. So what was what was it like uh, growing up in your household? There were lots of different stages of it. You know, when my parents were married, they were miserable. I, I mean, it's the one thing that makes you go, well, maybe there is some kind of God because why else would they be brought together but to make their kids? <laughs> right. There's no other reason. They're so different. <laughs> But they grew up after they were divorced. They both like found their the loves of their lives, and they always stayed like two miles apart, and mm-hmm. really became army buddies and siblings, and and very close. My dad and my stepmother were with her when she died uh. in, in the room. Um, what was it like? You know, I mean, there were some neat things. I remember I, I lived with my mom. Um, and and her friend that she met doing uh, Auntie Mame, uh, Pat Delzell, right. came and lived with us. And uh, she was like really another parent to me as well. And she's a teacher and a tutor and also sings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and we would have uh, Winter Wednesdays in New Hampshire We'd, where we, it would always have a theme, like... Thomas Edison was a theme, so everything we ate was round with a little hole in it, or you know. And uh, whenever there was a full moon, we'd go outside and sing "Blue Moon" and <laughs> harmonize. And uh, was it kind of was it very permissive, like you know, in the sense of hey, you want to make a make a joke that could be off color to some people, or you want to swear or whatever, you know? It was it totally. was welcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I realize now there were, for good and for bad, and I think mostly good, there mm-hmm. were no boundaries in our <laughs> household. My parents had no boundaries. They, We were privy to conversations that probably we shouldn't have been and things about their private life that children probably shouldn't hear, you know. And, uh, and But we were also exposed to everything Woody Allen, you know, I mean, I didn't know what an orgasmatron was referring to when I watched Sleeper, but I loved it, you know, the giant fruit and vegetables. um, You know, my mom had comedy albums she loved listening to, Woody Allen, Alan Sherman, uh, 2,000-year-old man, and all that kind of classic stuff, and um, yeah, we swore, you know, my dad says, fucking every other word but with joy I'm such a fucking lucky daddy you know it's just he doesn't even it doesn't register to him he's from Boston did you say or yeah yeah sure it's part of the you're born with that right yeah um (laughs) but he is such a you know he used to have a lot of anger and and really has just grown and blossomed as a man before my eyes as I was growing into this very happy go lucky never complains uh (laughs) lovely person well i want to ask you about sort of the adolescent years because it kind of connects to what this movie i smiled back about and it was had you not previously opened up about it that might never have have happened right right? so you know i guess it was originally you you initially dealt with it in your in your memoir 
but then subsequently, just very recently, even kind of more uh, so in, in a glamour piece that has gotten a lot of attention. I just wonder, to whatever extent you feel like uh, sharing, I mean, it sounds like those were very formative years and difficult years, but without them, you'd be a very different person. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't change anything because it's informed everything I am, and I I like this person mm-hmm. that I am, mm-hmm. and I like that I I change with new information, yeah. and I'm... You know, and a lot of that is from subsequent therapy needed mm-hmm. because of it, right. and, and good. Right. You know, it's it's so funny to me people don't go to therapy and listen. Seventy, eighty percent of shrinks are quacks, but um, <laughs> one, if you're talking, it's good. Right. And two, uh, spend time looking for a good one that right. you connect with. You 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 sh- you shop for a car. You go to ten different car lots. <laughs> you schlep around. You know. Shop for a, a therapist. Is it true that your first therapist kind of left you? He did. I, uh, I, I went to a psychiatrist when I was 13. That was when really clinical depression came over me like a, like a flu, mm-hmm. like as fast as, you know when you can go like from one second being fine and then go, oh my God, I have the flu. Right. It was right. that that fast. And, uh, and my parents sent me to a psychiatrist and he said, uh, I'm going to write you a, a prescription for something called Xanax, and then whenever you feel bad, just take one, which is, <laughs> you know, it was an early time of, of this stuff. And right. I thought, okay. Uh, and um, my mom dropped me off for my second uh, appointment, and I, I remember I read a whole People magazine from beginning to end, which I don't think I had ever done, right. and I went, Wow. That must have been a lot of time that passed. Yeah. And he shared a, a house, a spa, office space with um, a, a hypnotist I was seeing for bedwetting, which did not work at all. <laughs> and um, he came down with terrible bedside manner and in a screaming, crying fit, told me that my uh, doctor had hung himself. Oh, my God. And, you know, this is before cell phones or yeah. anything. So I was just this 13-year-old kid... Uh, waiting for the hour to finish for my mom to pick me up. <laughs> you know, and you like, just get this news drop There's on no you. one to call, you know. And, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was the start of it. But I, I struggled for about three years. I was my, my Xanax was upped and upped and upped by various quacks till I was, you know, a 13-year-old kid taking four Xanax four times a day. And I remember thinking, this can't be right. But it was a time where your parents trusted doctors. Right. You trust doctors and... I kept them all in a shoebox, the empty bottles, just thinking, well, if they find me, this will be a clue to what wow. happened. But yeah, yeah. I don't remember feeling very different, just kind of dead inside yeah. a little. And, uh, but I was eventually taken off of it by another psychiatrist, Dr. Santiago, who is, mm-hmm. you know, if we were the rare Jews in New Hampshire, he was the very rare Mexican. <laughs> and and he, he took me off very gradually, right. warning us, you know, you can't just go off this right. And by the time I took that little half, last half of Xanax at the bubbler, the water fountain at yeah. school, I was back to my You felt self like yourself, again. yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it is, and I know this is not like an original question, but it's one that I've not heard a good answer to, that so many people... <laughs> well, good, so the pressure's on me. <laughs> well, <laughs> well why, why is it that so many people who are able to make other people so happy, you know, make them laugh, make them you know, take their mind off their own troubles, 
have personal demons like this. I mean, obviously, the most recent example that everybody's been kind of still trying to figure out is Robin Williams, but it, it's always been this way, it seems. You can go yeah, back and find... we drop like flies. <laughs> well, mean, right? and even if you Started don't drop... keeping a list of friends that are dying, and it just gets so long, yeah. you know, and... Um, I've thought a lot about this, and I think that one very real reason is because the reason why comics become funny is a means of survival. It's it's surviving childhood. We all as humans are, are living our adult lives just trying to survive mm-hmm. childhood, and I believe that's also a part of this character, Lainey, you know? Totally. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of darkness. That's that's the co- a, a very common theme with comedians is that they're ro- they're rooted in darkness, and um, and they became funny as a means of survival, surviving childhood, surviving school, surviving whatever it is. It's the classic example is the the fat kid making the fat joke before anyone else can, mm-hmm. and that's you know very real template for something that we all experience in different ways. I was a very hairy, scrawny little Jew in blonde (laughs) New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, I remember just needing, you know, having this instinct looking back of like making my friend's parents feel like I was not a threat or Mm -hmm. scary or, you know, and, um, being funny was a, a real way to survive that, you know, and you, so you go off to NYU, big big culture change, right? You're suddenly mm-hmm. in the city. And was it something that you? I mean, it seems like you were already hitting the comedy scene right off the bat, right? Yeah. Seems, and and so, how did that go? And and I mean, it seems like it would have gone well if after a year, I think you were you were going to focus on that. Yeah. I uh, well, I started. I always had been writing stand-up. I went to a great high school that was very open. They'd have assemblies every Friday, and if you had something you wanted to do or present or say, and so I would do, you know, two, three minutes of uh, stand-up on the kids and the teachers and school and stuff, and and I went to summer school in Boston when I was 17, and that's when I first did stand-up at oh, a really? club. I did an open mic at a club where I, I first saw Wendy Liebman, it was very exciting, and... Uh, and uh, then I moved to New York to go to NYU. I, I went for a year. I was a drama major, and I started uh, working at a comedy club, passing out flyers, and they would give me free um, stage time in exchange. And because I was working there from 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. every day, I was sleeping through my classes, which, you know, I was always a very good student, and it killed me. I was trying to pinch myself awake, and I... I just couldn't keep my eyes open because I was working all night, mm-hmm. and um, but I I made it through, and and but my dad made a deal with me. He said, you know, you're gonna be a comedian, and you don't need a degree for that. So why don't you drop out of school, and you know NYU these schools are rich people go to mm-hmm. that's why rich people go to college. It's <laughs> it's very expensive. I right. had a, a small. Um, um, grant, you know, money, but it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't a lot. And mm-hmm. my dad said, you know, you could save me, you know, um, a lot of money yeah. if you drop out, and I'll right. pay your rent. My rent was three hundred and fifty dollars, right. and I'll pay your rent your sophomore junior as if it were your sophomore junior right. senior year, and you could focus on being a stand up. And it was a great deal. I I stole from NYU, and I <laughs> I suggest that anyone near a big university do the same. I would just go to 
big lecture classes yeah. of things I was interested yeah. in, and uh, I didn't pass in the papers or whatever, but... Um, you know, you can steal education if you don't need a degree, you right. know. Well, it must have been nice also to have your dad believe in you that much that he would say, go and do this. A lot yeah. of people don't get that blessing from the parent to go and do an unusual career. Yeah, he, he really did. And um, by the time I would have graduated, I, I was hired as a, a writer on Saturday Night Live. Wow. Well, I, I do want to talk about that, and I, I hope it's okay to just do a few other things before we get to yeah, the I'm smile back. Yeah, I I've been back. so talky. I, no, no, I, I didn't it's feel wonderful. Like I had anything to say. It's just like therapy. You, know, you go, I don't have anything to talk about, and then all of a sudden my mouth is moving, and I'm thinking, oh, no, my you've mouth been, is you've moving. been great. I just don't want you to think we're not going to talk about I smile right, back. Right, of but course, I think that's that, why I'm here. Yeah, I know. Uh, but I, I, I forget <laughs> about the, the um, job. But I think people are, are you know very curious. They've known you for they've known your work for a long time, and I think they'd be curious to know like. The SNL experience, for instance, that you just referenced, it was, a, it was a year in your life, and I don't know that it necessarily was exactly the way you imagined it from, from what I've read. It wasn't how I imagined it, yeah. but um, I think we all kind of idealize this situation, like, I can just create things, and then right. they're on live television, right. and of course it's more complicated than that. It was an unbelievable experience. I was so lucky to be hired. I don't know what Lorne saw in me at that age. I was a kid. 22, um, right? I was 22, Amazing. barely, and yeah. um, uh, you know, I, you know, I look, I look back, and you know, I didn't get any sketches on the air that made it past dress rehearsal that I wrote myself, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought, well, that's the same as Larry David, you know, right. <laughs> but then I, I looked at my old sketches and I said, oh, these are terrible. <laughs> you did that recently, or you did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. When yeah. I wrote my book, I was, I looked at all these things, yeah. and it was very funny and. Um, but it was a, an amazing experience, a huge life experience, a great boot camp for the rest of my life, and I'm so grateful for it. And it seems like from that you transitioned into some of the, I guess, the earliest professional acting that you had done, right? A lot of the sitcoms and stuff. And But was it is it fair to say that as as cool as it may have been to do Seinfeld or Larry Sanders or any of that, was the big break as you look back? The, the Conan moment, which people may well remember? Oh, well, I mean, that was an unfortunate big break, but it was. It was yeah. almost completely positive uh, effect on my life, unfortunately, for, for Guy Aoki. I, I made a racist <laughs> joke uh, that was absurd and about very, very clearly about racism, but right. comedy is subjective. Right. This is a guy who's really looking... To point fingers, he has a what I think is an important job. I mean, I think watchdog groups are important. And he's he was like Asian watchdog. Uh huh. And and, and uh, you know, I said buzzwords, racist buzzwords, mm-hmm. um, that he took out of context. And in context, he he wasn't interested. You know, I went on uh, politically incorrect right. with him and, and right. thought we were going to have a actual conversation and a, a learning. You know, like a, a communication. But he had no. He had no, he had his stakes were too high. You right. know, the whole audience was filled with people, right. and he had given my, e- my I had emailed him to talk about it and have a back and mm-hmm. forth. Uh, you know, at, at best, comedy is a convers starts right. a conversation, right. not to be. And he just he gave it to uh, a ton thousands uh, of people no. instead. And this is how lazy I am. Never changed my email address. Really? Just lived <laughs> through it. But um, but I mean, is the takeaway from that? It obviously brought you to the attention of a lot. Uh, My takeaway from it was 
uh, don't explain your comedy. It's for other people to do. It's subjective. You put it out there, and and you know if you want to be edgy or risky, the, that comes with consequences. That's what makes it edgy or risky. And if people are going to infer it in negative ways, um, that's up to them. Mm-hmm. It, you, it's not your business. Right. And. You know, there's nothing worse than trying to explain comedy. It's there's nothing less funny or appealing or cool. Um, so that was a really good lesson. I'm a big supporter of apologizing and changing when you are sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, this was not the case in that instance. <laughs> no, right. I mean, I and I, you know, there were a lot of Asian people that were very supportive and outspoken, and he doesn't right. represent us. And it, but it. it whether it was good or bad or right or anyone was right or wrong, it propelled my career. Right, right, <laughs> you know, right. I was banned from NBC <laughs> and, you know, all this stuff. But it, I became someone people. And doing Conan, Conan right. had me on all the time. And that was when I first was, like, recognized on the street. Like, oh, I right, see you on right, Conan. Right. So, I, yeah, I do think of that a lot. And, and that was – and then, yeah, of course, Larry Sanders, Seinfeld – um, Mr. Show, all these things. I had so many great stepping stones and highlights and, and parts of my life that were huge for me, you know. Well, just one last comedy-specific question, if I can. It's uh, It seems like watching watching you over the years, uh, whether, you know, starting, let's say, with Jesus is Magic and then your own show, and uh, for which you got an Emmy nomination, we should note, uh, which mm-hmm. I think was so rare to see a sketch show get nominated for acting. Uh, it's nar- it was narrative. It wasn't Nar- sketch, Well, excuse me, but, pardon me, but comedic, the, the, I mean. Com- yeah. it, comedy Central yes. had never been right. nominated Right, Comedy Central, that's what I mean, right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but do you feel that, you know, if you if you were to dissect your own, like, comedic persona, I don't know if this is getting too serious about it, but, like, you know, it seems to me like the, as an observer, the thing that people just get such a kick out of is that what you're seeing as far as the, the presentation of the kind of the innocent, you know, as you, as you like to remind Jewish girl, saying these things that are often kind of you, they take you back. Is it the is it the contrast or has that evolved? Has that changed over the years? What is oh, that the root? Yeah, of? I've changed a lot. I mean, my right. last special was nothing like my first special. I mean, right. they're 10 years apart and right. it would be awful if they were similar <laughs> in any way other than I look like an older version of her. But do things not, is there not a through line like in terms of the way? Well, the way I thought of it in terms of, I thought of it as Jesus is Magic, my first special, and then the Sarah Silverman program, mm-hmm. which was to me kind of a spinoff of that, mm-hmm. is a a character that is named me, but is a wildly arrogant and hugely ignorant and I love the combination of those two things and I thought they were ways to uh, point out real kind of um, social politics without um, without being earnest at all you know <laughs> by being um, and, and hoping that you know ulti- you know all I care about is that people laugh but there's a secret hope that the kind of absolute power of the the saying the opposite of what I mean might transcend. Right. You know? So for anybody that thinks it's just purely about, you know, for some some comedians just get the laugh, but there is a like a, a underlying kind of point you're you're generally trying to make. 
Yeah, I mean, the the laugh is to me the number one, right? <laughs> the most important thing. That's right. what I'm here for. But, um, yeah, it's always a plus if there's if it if it if you walk away thinking about it, right? You know, right. So with take this waltz first kind of foray, I think into drama was what was that experience like? Did you feel immediately at ease, or was it um, you know these are Terrific people, Sarah Polly, Michelle Williams. That what they do. Were you? Did you kind of feel that you could transition uh, seamlessly into that? Well, it did feel like um, it, it was a combination. I mean, I really didn't want to let Sarah down. I am such a fan, and she's been so generous. And the fact that she saw me as this character was something I was very grateful for. And um, but she was so supportive, and it, it was. It was. You know, there was a, a scene where I fall off the wagon and I'm drunk, and that's challenging. I'm not a drinker, um, but I'm surrounded by drinkers, and I'm familiar with it. And I, one thing I definitely took for that scene was that professional drinkers that I know many of um, are very good at pretending to be sober when they're drunk it's it's almost muscle memory for mm-hmm. them at that point so i i was uh i kind of made the choice to be a professional you know to be um to speak very clearly and you know pointedly and not be the typical kind of slurry mm-hmm. drunk cuz um yeah that was that was the choice way there, but it, but it, the rest of it was really just being honest and saying these lines like they're real and pretending. You know, I I first learned that I can, I'm allowed to pretend that acting is pretending. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I, I I got a role on a two part Star Trek Voyager, and um, I I hired a, an acting coach, mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we went over the. We were going over the beats of the, you know, the, the script and everything. And, and at one point, and he's very hoity-toity acting coach, and, you know. And at one point, he just kind of shrugged and said, look, sometimes when you're running from lasers, you just have to pretend you're running from lasers. <laughs> it was right. such a, a relief, right. you know, like, right, I can do that. You don't need like, an extra motivation. or uh, Yeah, you don't uh, have to pull from your childhood <laughs> or, or shadow you know, uh, scientists from SETI labs, you know, whatever. Um, So that was a really great lesson, you know, of the acting lessons I've had. It was kind of like, right, it is pretending. Right. Now, was it a positive enough experience that you were sort of almost anxious to do another drama? Or was it, again, let's just see what what comes our way? I, I, uh... I never really think about the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, that's probably a, um, a, a downfall a little bit. But uh, I never really. I think about the future in terms of comedy mm-hmm. and what I want to do next and dreaming. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I. I remember my agent calling me once, and I had been just sitting in a chair in my living room for about uh, two hours. Mm-hmm. He's, what are you doing right now? And I said. I'm working, you know, but, uh, you know, it is, yeah. you know, and, um, but in terms of like my career trajectory, I've never, uh, ever given Quite it a fun. thought. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. never crossed my mind. But it's, it, again, I don't know, not everything you read out there is correct, but one of the profiles that I, I read to try to prepare for this was that it seems like after that, 
you would meet with casting. There would be occasional casting director meetings or things where it was maybe frustrating because despite your uh, sense and desire that you could you could do other things, they still have a hard time when I don't, I don't know if it's them not being able to imagine you doing different things or them being concerned that the audience might not be able to imagine you doing different things. But you were, you know, the, the quote that I had read was um, that something about that they kept seeing you as the sassy best friend or something well, like that. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, when you're a comic and when you, you have a last name like Silverman, you you know, you yes, you get typecast for sure. You get mm-hmm. to be the, the uh, cunty girlfriend before the guy realizes what love really can be <laughs> or the, uh, the sassy, you know, friend who is the exposition for the main character mm-hmm. because uh, uh, that was easier than right. writing it well. Um, and there are good friend roles yeah. if it's three dimensional or whatever. Right. I mean, I met with a director who, a very fancy director, and he said it was for a, a movie that had with a family that had all, all different roles, mm-hmm. and he wanted me to read the the bitchy, whatever New York girlfriend mm-hmm. that uh, he doesn't realize what love can really be until right. he leaves her. Um, <laughs> and I said, oh, I'd love to read for this role. This mm-hmm. This quirky, uh, just real three-dimensional person who deserved love, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he said, "Oh no, no one will ever see you like that." Um, you know, ever since you did School of Rock, uh, that's just no one's gonna want to cast you as a sympathetic or kind person. And I remember just a single tear, like even though I was trying so hard to hold right. it back, just like fell out of my eye. But. Yeah. I also just, you know, you have to walk away from that and go, oh, wait, he doesn't know everything. Well, he doesn't know you. (laughs) And, um, you know, and then, um, uh, yeah, and another iconic, amazing director who I love very much, you know, I read for something he did, and he said, well, that was really great. And he said, but, you know, I just, I'm just never going to hire you because you're, you're Sarah Silverman. You're you're um, a personality, and I need an actor who people can can dis you know who can disappear and and who can, people can get lost in, and that was really hard to hear because I totally understand that. I mean, I, I really understand that. I as someone who loves movies and television, and not being able to. Uh, get lost mm-hmm. in someone that I've seen on the cover right. of Us Weekly, week in and week out, or you know they're, right. you know, I'm not that, but right. I'm I'm me. Right. I'm famous for being me right. or some version of right. me. You know, it's like Joan Rivers' greatest sadness was that nobody ever saw her as an actress. And right? to her, she was acting, you know. She, yeah. she was writing, she was performing, and she was her own name, and she talked the way she talked. But... To make material feel like it's coming off the top of your head as you're honing it right. over years, or you know, I mean, it is acting. It doesn't mean that it it can transcend every kind of acting, but right. but um, that is, you know, that is a real thing, you know. And and I would want people to be able to get lost in in a character that I played, and I, you know. Um, it's weird. I mean, to me, I remember my agents at the time saying, "Well, we don't have uh, any any we don't have a drama reel for you." And I said, "Well, what about the aristocrats?" Mm-hmm. 
and they laughed like I was kidding and they you know they just they brushed me off and uh but to me I don't see the difference between that and dramatic acting I that was dramatic mm-hmm. acting the fact that people laughed from it right. is neither here nor there other than it was successful right. in that way but <laughs> but it wasn't I didn't approach it any differently than I would drama so when you get this call from Amy Cobbleman who wrote the book I smile back was that um, you know, saying I'm think I guess saying I heard you on Howard Stern and I something, con- you know, connected you with with this character. Um, what's your what's your reaction? Um, I was surprised, and it's you know it is it's always really, and when I say always, this has happened to me twice. You know, it is so lovely and and to be for someone to be able to imagine you in ways they haven't already seen you be and and odd that that's so rare and um I was so grateful you know because I I have more sides to me and I maybe don't have the ambition to need to prove right, that right, I do right, because right. I love being a comedian right. it's my joy I'm proud right. of it um but uh but I felt I could do this you know and even when I was scared and felt like I couldn't. I thought, um, well, this is good. These are feelings. <laughs> and and I understand that a part of you was not sure this was ever going to actually pan out as a oh, movie. Oh, yeah, well, but... they said, you know, will you attach yourself right. to this? And I was like, me? You know, yeah, sure, no problem. It, it didn't occur to me at all this would get made. Most movies don't get made. and Right. Um, so, and if it was real, they would get uh, some fancy actress attached <laughs> to it if they really wanted funding for this. But you were you were involved with the script writing, right? I, you know, I I uh, would read drafts and mm-hmm. and give my thoughts and notes, and um, uh, you know, I I don't want to, I don't need to take credit for. I mean, I I did. I there was a tweak at the end that yeah, I affected. And they, uh, yeah, please say They've it. been very... I, I wouldn't have said anything other than they have said in interviews. But it's a great so. moment in the movie. I think it's like such a, a kind of poignant thing that it sounds like it was your uh, idea. And it's not surprising because you do a lot of writing in other yeah. ways. So but um, so that there was that involvement. And then also you brought Josh Charles on board? Well, I, I, I know Josh, right. and I and we really wanted him. They had thought of him, and, and uh, I don't know if they did or I did, but we were all right. very excited at yeah, the thought that great. would he do this, and what a beautiful role for him. And um, they sent it to him, and I, I said, oh, I'll, I'll text him. Right. And I did, and he goes, oh, I love this for you. You know, let me read it. And then, right. like, he texted me right back and was like, I'm in. Wow. And great. I was just like, first of all, it's it's this tiny movie. Nobody's right. doing it for money. It was a four hundred thousand right, right, dollar right. movie that we shot days, in twenty right. days, yeah. and, and uh, it, I was so grateful. And you know, he, it, it was a beautiful part for him. He's so beautiful mm-hmm. in it. I mean, just oh, and and that last moment you see him is just oh yeah, uh, you lose it. And um, and it was the first time that I ever felt like uh, the things that I used to scoff that actors would say was real, you know, like uh, things like that Josh was such a generous actor. Mm-hmm. Now I understand what mm-hmm. that means. Mm-hmm. I never did, and I would just go, oh, God. He he, and Tommy Sadowski, too. They're, yeah. You know, so, and Terry Kinney. But, like, you know, as my husband, Josh, he was so generous. He was so not just thinking of his own game, but 
of me being comfortable and, and wanting me so much to succeed, yeah. you know, and, and it was very, uh, the whole experience was very moving and emotional. <laughs> was it, was it very different from what you expected though? I mean, I, did you feel like you would be able to let loose, let's say between takes or between, you know, things? fully? Yeah. I, I, well, that was my survival skill in this yeah. was, uh, well, it'll be fun between takes, right, you yeah. know, uh, it will be heavy during shooting, but you know, we'll have bits and we'll laugh right. and we'll have inside jokes and we'll have lots of belly laughs. And it's not like that didn't exist at all, right. but it wasn't. I, I like I said, I my my I'm very um, my emotions are very very tightly packed inside me. I don't have easy access to them, and I needed to access them. So once they were out, right. they were just on my lap Rah. between scenes. Yeah. You know. Um, I had no play. I felt like a, a toddler in between scenes acting out because I, I didn't know what to do with my feelings. You know, right. it was very childlike in that way. And, and you know, I needed easy access to a lot of dark emotions and, and, then, and then hopefully expertly cover them because that's what Lainey does. Do and, you have to – is it something where you have to kind of trick yourself into saying – or maybe not trick yourself. Do you actually have to like the character to, to be able to fully uh, inhabit her? I mean, in this case, she's a complicated, sometimes hard to defend individual. Completely. I, you know, I tried to not judge her at all and and play her as objectively mm-hmm. as possible because I mean, what I love about this character is and about the movie is that people are going to walk away. It's going to be like the blind men and the elephant in that way because what they see entirely depends on the prism of their own personal life experience and what they take to that theater when they watch it. Everyone's been on one side or the other Mm -hmm. of depression Mm -hmm. and of addiction. Mm -hmm. So they might have empathy for her. They might be wildly sympathetic. They might have total disdain, you know, for this woman who on paper has a perfect life right, and, right. and is still like, wah, her childhood was rough. It was right. not as rough as the roughest child. Her right. childhood's way worse. Right. I, I think my childhood can contend with her childhood. <laughs> but it's not a competition. Right, there right. are people that thrive past right. it or because of it or despite it, and there right. are people that cannot. And life was is hard for her. I think you have, like, a number of... Uh, terrific terrific moments in the movie and I just want to ask you what, what if there's one that as you think back on it was the most complicated the most challenging the one that you felt the best about when it was when you got through it I mean to me I'm just going to put out a few and not to not that you, you have to pick from these but like you know the when she goes into the daughter's room when yes. she's sleeping when she blows through the stoplight which is basically you know and again out of context, I don't think we're spoiling right. anything for anybody. It was but. all really challenging, and, yeah. and that's where, where I learned that there are other things besides fun. Yeah. Because I can say this shoot was not fun, mm-hmm. but it was in some ways so much more. I, I've been addicted to fun mm-hmm. or knowing that this is going to be we're going to laugh. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, comics, they stick together. They, right. they don't feel comfortable with other people a lot of the time. And but there are there are actually it turns out more things to life i mean i still love fun and and being funny and <laughs> right. making jokes right um but that this was satisfying in a whole other way and 
getting takes like those takes was exhilarating, exciting. It it, it mirrors comedy in that way, the, the, the itchy arms that I would get yeah. when I can make an audience laugh. It, it I felt a similar kind of um, exhilaration, you know, and there's no audience. You don't know how it's playing right, instantly right. like you do with comedy, but it was... Um, a much more internal accomplishment, you know, for just just sure, for me, you, you know, felt to, good. you know, having nothing to do with how art outside forces will respond to this. I can't control sure. that, but um, yeah, it was the, the teddy bear scene. Things like that were really, um, I felt, were really vital and important, and. Getting it's it's even when you're the only one in the scene, or there's a sleeping child right, who right. is. You know, keep your eyes uh, closed still. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, she was not there for some of the questions. Well, I guess just... It is a team sport, even if you're the only one there. Right. You know, and it it felt like, it felt like a team sport in in success. Sure. Scene by scene. Well, very, very briefly, the last two things. First of all, how gratifying was it, I can only imagine, to go to Sundance and see this movie be so well received in your performance in particular i mean it's 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 the first time that you have been the lead in a drama or anything or anything i guess uh and to get such good reaction must have been pretty nice yeah it was really uh i'm really um working on or i I, i'm letting it make me feel great i am but you know a little bit guarded, um, but I, I really am letting it make me feel great. Uh, I've worked so hard in therapy to not have uh, how other people feel uh, um, uh, dictate my mm-hmm. self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So it's it's challenging because I know the pendulum swings the other way, sure. and I, I I'm you know that's a, an important thing to uh, to achieve for happiness. I think, mm-hmm. um, but. I'm just deciding to let this make me feel great. That's good. And, you know. That's good. and then just as the last thing, I wonder, have you ever seen the movie Sullivan's Travels? No, oh, yes, of course. Okay, so I wonder, you know, in light of what you've been going through lately with the uh, jumping between drama and comedy and, you know, they both have their purposes in life and and I'm sure to you different meanings, uh, you know, what's, what's your outlook looking forward? Do you share kind of the view of, of that movie that, you know, drama is wonderful but comedy is also pretty important in in the grand scheme of things yeah i i love um i have a new love and respect for drama and it's exciting to me but uh and and i believe that comedy and drama share a lot of the same bones um i would never want to never again do either but i i'm a uh, my dna is i'm a comedian that's i'm a part of that um, island of misfit toys, and I, I have great pride in that. I would never dream to want. I would never want to stop doing stand up and and seeking laughs. But um, you know, I like doing all those things. I like, I'm a, I think of myself as someone who does odd jobs, and I <laughs> whether it's a video on my couch or a dramatic role in a film or a, a part on a. A web series or a Very TV funny show tweets, uh, or those, tweets. Yeah. I, I like expressing yeah, right, myself right. Uh, um, in all sorts of ways, and uh, I try to embrace the 
future and technology and and uh, let it uh, inspire me. I think when people get old, when they get stuck in their ways and, and stop getting inspired. Well, please please keep it up. It's a lot of fun to watch and really appreciate you coming and doing this. Thank, Thank you. you. I was so chatty i feel like i talked too much <laughs> no it's terrific but thank you thank you